Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here, as always, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, uh, you know, sometimes if you page through your New Testament um, and you see a quote from the Old Testament, that there'll sometimes be a note there and it will refer to something called the LXX. So uh, I uh, I was pretty puzzled by that growing up. I, I didn't know what the LXX meant. Um, so I would like to talk about what is this uh what is this being referred to um and it turns out it's actually a greek translation of the bible that happens between the old testament and the new testament called the septuagint so l l x x is actually referring to septuagint and is that is there a relationship between the the that name and that number lxx obviously is a is a number there um, so what, what's, is there a relationship between the name and the number there? Uh, yes, yeah, Septu, uh, Septuaginta, it means 70. It's Latin term for 70. So it's the Bible of the 70. And so the LXX is the, is the Roman numeral for 70. L for 50 plus two X's. Each 10, it gives you 70. Well, I'm sure we'll come back around to you what that means, the, the, the Bible of the 70. But, uh, you know, the, the main thing um, that's of importance here, right, is that this particular translation of the Bible is often cited in the New Testament. And it's cited by Paul, cited by Jesus. Um, so it's really important for us to know know about it and know what it is, you know, its differences from the original Hebrew text. But um, let's just uh, do our regular thing, Father Stephen, where we run down um, the features of a text, you know, its, its provenance, where does it come from, um, What's its enduring importance today? So first of all, what, what is the Septuagint? Well, uh, it's a, a Jewish translation. It was made by Jews. This is very important because some of the quotations we have in the New Testament are very Christological, but it was very much from first to last a Jewish translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's written in Koine Greek. Uh, that's the same version of Greek um, that we use in the New Testament. That's, uh, Koine means the common Greek, the, the Greek of everyday people. Okay, it was, was Koine. It was used around the Mediterranean as opposed to classical Greek. Now, this is not as automatic as you'd think. You see, we use Koine in the Bible, in the New Testament, and we use it here. But actually, the church fathers typically write in classical Greek. So, I mean, you know, normally when you learn uh, Koine Greek, you know, you're, you're limited basically to biblical texts, you know, and some minor types of things. But uh, even the church fathers tended to write in classical Greek. So it's a translation. It was made in Egypt between the 3rd and the 2nd centuries before Christ. Okay, so this uh, this difference between classical Greek and Koine Greek, we haven't talked about this on the podcast before, but can you quickly just, you, you said Koine is the common Greek, but w- w- what is that, what's the difference there, when, especially when it comes to the written language? How can you tell the difference? 
well, they're um, like they're different registers, as we say in linguistics, is that Greek and Latin, both in, in a world without modern communications and the like, languages were not standardized. That is, there's considerable difference between languages spoken hundreds of miles away, the same language, considerable differences. The reason they had the classics, by the way, in the ancient world wasn't because they were just great literature, which they are. It was how you could learn a standard form of language everybody could understand. <laughs> so you, the reason you read uh, you read Homer and things and the and the uh, the Greek drama, uh, dramatists was so you would write good Greek. Everyone except this is the this is really really good Greek, or in Latin you'd read the Latin classics for the same reason. But people actually used a simpler form of the language, and uh, here in um, the Hebrew uh, rather in Greek uh, we call it Koine, the common Greek. It was just a general lingua franca, meaning a language that people who like now around the world you go to a lot of places and people who don't speak English as their mother t- tongue will speak it simply as a practical way to get around. Almost anywhere you go, we'd find someone who speaks English. So that's a koine. It was sort of the kind like international English. Okay, okay. It's international English today. It's simply the kind of English people would understand anywhere in the world. So it was a general type of, a special type of very simple, relatively simpler Greek than the classical Greek. One thing we could say for people studying Greek, I've got to tell you this, my wife teaches Greek, but, you know, it's the same thing as Latin, whether you learn uh, which form you learn of Latin, the classical form or other forms is if you know the classical, you can read the common form. It never works the other way. So I would advise people studying Greek, study classical Greek. If you have studied classical Greek, you'll just pick up the Bible and read it. It does not work the other way. Well, you heard it here first. Um, save yourself, uh, save yourself some, some time. I hear pencils dropping all over. People <laughs> saying, oh. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, let's talk about the name Septuagint. Where does this come from? Well, it comes from a the this became such an important translation that it has a there's a legendary story to give it credence. You know, like we talk about the King James Bible is called the authorized version in England mm-hmm. because it was the official version. So what we have according to the story, and this is a legendary story with some elements of truth, but the story itself is is over the top. Is <laughs> Ptolemy the second at Philadelphus? He is a, one of the uh, kings of Egypt. He's not a pharaoh because this is Ptolemy's Greek name. This is after Alexander the Great. Okay, so they set up a Greek dynasty. Supposedly, when he was setting up the library in Alexandria, the great Alexandrian library, that he said, you know, we need a copy of the, everyone's heard of the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, of, of the five books of Moses. We need to have a translation in Greek so people can actually read this. So he supposedly sent to the high priest in Jerusalem and said, hey, can you please send me a group, uh, send me a copy of the original text, a really nice, you know, pretty copy of the original text, sort of a coffee table book, okay, before coffee tables, uh, and send me translators who can translate that into Greek. And so the high priest, we're told, sent six translators from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, that comes up to 72, but 70 is good enough. So we, that's how we get the name Septuagint. There's no nice, really uh, single word that would taste 70, the 70, Bible of the 72. So we simply say the 70, the Septuagint. But there were uh, supposedly 72 uh, translators. And supposedly he put them on the island of Pharos, that's in the, uh, in the Nile River, isolated from everything. And uh, stories get even better as, they, as it builds up was that they were all locked in individual cells and they were asked to translate the five books of Moses. And you'll never, believe me, you'll never guess what happened. When they come out, everyone has a word for word exactly the same translation. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. Now, I know we have some, uh, <laughs> many of our, many of our listeners might be monolinguals, uh, in which case, I just have to tell you, that's not how languages work. There's not a yeah. word for it. There's no possible way that could ever happen. It would be a miracle. It's like they, uh, they, uh, they all came out with round squares or something. Yeah, it's, uh, it yeah. cannot happen. But it was meant if, to be saying, wow, this is miraculous. I swear the fish was this big. Well, that's frankly more believable than 72 <laughs> people separately translating a book and coming up with word-for-word identical translations. Okay, so that's kind of the uh, uh, embellished... Um, golden legend here of uh yes. of the septuagint um but what what do we know about uh the historical origin well we know a lot about that uh first of all it um we already know in the bible that hebrew is no longer the language of the jews it's become a religious language at best by the way early for example when they come back from the um, babylonian exile is when they talk about you know the the reading of the law with ezra and they talk about the people went around interp- uh, you know, interpreting to them. They don't mean interpreting in the sense of, here's what I think they're getting at, like a little sermon. They were talking about translating into a language anybody actually understood. Mm. They had picked up a very re- a closely related language to Hebrew, another Semitic language called Aramaic. It's super simple to pick up if you know Hebrew. Uh, I mean, for example, Aramaic is a language in Talmud. You know, you have Aramaic in the Talmud and things. And so if you know Hebrew, you can learn Aramaic. But these people no longer knew Hebrew. And so the trouble was, that was the first step. We see that in the Bible. But after Alexander the Great, a lot of Jews, I mean, many, many Jews lived outside of the Holy Land. They lived in the Greek world, you know, the Greek-speaking world. And so just like people who come to America often forget their languages from the places they came from, right? You After a generation or two, people don't speak Italian anymore, or Spanish or whatever it is. They, they lost their language. So they wanted to have access to what they would do in the synagogues. By the way, at this time, we estimate that at least two-fifths of the population of Alexandria was made of Jews. Alexandria is one of the largest cities in the ancient world. It was huge. And these people didn't know Hebrew anymore. Hebrew was a foreign language to them. It's like studying Latin. And they, something used it in church. It's something used in synagogue. Matter of fact, in the synagogues, what they did is after they read the text, they would read, uh, they'd read a translation. Uh, oh, yeah. here's, what okay. the, here's what he just said. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. So what they did is they put together a, a trend. It, instead of just having people come up with this translation, they decided to have a standard translation. So they put together a translation. Now, first, it was just the books of Moses, the, five, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay. However, we know that within a century, by 130 BC, we know for a fact that they finished translating all the Bible. Have You know, the, all the Hebrew Bible was translated. However, I've got to tell you, there's no way the same people did this. I mean, there are so many differences within the Septuagint. I mean, it's very clear. There's a ho- very homogeneous. The first five books are very much the same group of people. You know, you, it just has this feel, cohesion to it. Otherwise, there are a whole lot of differences in sizes and translation approaches. You see, some translations are very word for word. Others are very much, well, it sort of means this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just sort of para- paraphrastic. And uh, so with the other books of the Bible, there are a lot of differences. But we end up, all of this gets together, basically the standard Greek version of the Bible, the version that anybody who, uh, frankly, wasn't a scholar and lived in the, in the Mediterranean world, the version of the Bible they would know. Now, it was widely used. It was really respected. It was used in the Holy Land because, again, most Jews didn't know Hebrew. So even in the Holy Land, it's quoted by rabbis and things. It was well thought of as a translation. only becomes unpopular with Jews because it was so popular among Christians. You see, some of our best, um, you know, uh, lines, uh, 
predicting the Lord Jesus and his coming, are taken directly from the Septuagint translation. And sometimes that's a little more favorable. And so they came to look suspiciously upon it. But until the end of the uh, first century, uh, it was widely respected even in the Holy Land. Okay, okay. All right, so this, it really does initially, you know, open up engagement with uh, with the Hebrew scriptures to Jews all over the place um, at the world at this time. The idea is that you could explain your faith to others. They could actually see these texts. That's why you know, the, the tr- there's some, pro- some elements of truth in the story in the sense that there was a demand from educated pagans. They said, this is really a phenomenon, Jews, because there are a lot of things people really respected, you know, uh, in Judaism. And so we'd like to know more about it. So, but you, you talked about earlier how there are actually some real differences from the Hebrew text in this Greek translation um, of the Hebrew text. So let's talk about some of those. What, what, what kind of differences can we expect to see? Well, first of all, they're everywhere in the sense that every single book of the Septuagint has changed differences from the, uh, from the Hebrew text. However, some of them are really negligible, minor things, very minor. Others are really extensive, coming to the point of adding material or omitting material or moving around. For example, if you look in the Septuagint, there are 151 psalms, not 150. It's not just changing the numbering. We have an extra psalm. Uh, That's kind of how we all felt when uh, they started adding extra Pokemon after the original 150. It's like you were there. It's that traumatic. I'm sorry, I had to. Okay, so but so we got a lot of material potentially added. But we also had material omitted. Huh. For example, in, in Jeremiah, probably an eighth of the book is missing. You know, it's, uh, it's considerably shortened. And with Daniel and Esther, they actually added a lot of material. We call them the additions to Daniel, the additions to Esther. In Esther's case, Esther has a problematic book for a lot of people. We don't find in the Dead Sea Scrolls any any piece of it. Why? Because it never mentions God. Mm, yeah, yeah. Believe me, the Greek version makes up for it. They do nothing else. <laughs> I mean, the Greek version has all sorts of prayers at every turning of the corner. Okay. You know, so they, they make it a very re- overtly religious book in that version. They keep the original, but they also add on these things and they move material around. Uh, Daniel, they just add some really some lovely uh, canticles like the canticle of the three men in the furnace, and they, they add some additional things. Uh, but so there are, sometimes there's really adding and omitting of material, but mo- many of the differences are purely negligible that we would expect to find, uh, you know, in translation. Well, so why are there differences, though, in the first place? Isn't it when you sit down to translate a text, aren't you trying to just, you know, translate what it says into another language? So why are these, why are there the extensive differences that there are? Well, sometimes there were theological reasons, like we said in the example we just gave with Esther. You know, they felt this. That's not typical. Uh, Sometimes there are euphemistic reasons. For example, the Hebrew Bible often, the way Hebrew thought works is if God permits something to happen that pushes on his his agenda, we talk about God doing it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The same, that's in the Hebrew text, and it also says that in the, um, uh, says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So basically, if God makes use of something, we talk about God doing it. And sometimes that was a little scandalous, things like that. And so the Greek text would change it. So God isn't um, seen as doing things that just taken literally would, would not sound appropriate. So there's some issues like that. More commonly, there are rare words in the text that were, I mean, in the sense that we're unknown to translators. 
You know, they, um, and also the quality of the translators can vary. You know, again, they were foreigners, they studied it, etc. But they're just words they certainly came upon. And this is a problem for regular Hebrew readers of the, of, the, of, the, of the Bible. I mean, anybody who, if you read Talmud, you know that one of the things people cherish is Rashi. Rashi's one of the commentators <laughs> uh, who is forever telling you how to get a heart out of hard Hebrew situations. What in the world does that mean? Do you know what this word means? Because there are things like a haplex, something that only exists once in the Bible text, and it sort of dropped out, and people don't, we don't use the word anymore, let's say, in the language. Huh, well, yeah. What do you suppose it meant? You know, so we have those kind of issues where there are rare words that the translators, that we know a lot more about, but the translators just didn't know it wasn't a common word. But also another real problem would be is the oldest version of the Bible we had for many centuries was called the Masoretic Text. And that comes from the 6th century after our Lord, you know, 6th century AD. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had an episode on that, showed that that was a pretty reliable text. However, we're still talking about a few centuries after the, um, trans this translation. So some of the things might have been that the original Hebrew text was different. They were, they were translating a Hebrew text which is older than anything we have. So we can't eliminate the possibility that perhaps the Hebrew text uh, was itself different Sure. You know, and was preserved by the translators. We don't totally know, but we can't rule that out, is what you're saying. Yeah. I would put that one down as the least likely, from my personal opinion, because the Dead Sea Scrolls to me changed everything, because it just showed the remarkable ability right. uh, to do this accurately. But it's, still, it's certainly a possibility sure. that in several centuries that uh, things go wrong in transmission. And that we've preserved an earlier version in some cases of the actual original Hebrew text. Right. And, earlier and that, you know, we, we talked about that in our episode about the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? About how that, that, um, like why that kind of oral transmission can be so accurate. Um, yeah. People who haven't lived in oral societies have no idea. One thing we can tell in our modern times, uh, you know what a uh, madrasa is. A madrasa is a Muslim school. They're uh, in traditional Muslim school. In a traditional Muslim school, the main focus for young boys is to learn how to recite the Quran by heart in Arabic. The Quran is about the length of the New Testament, to give you an idea. Most of these boys do not speak Arabic. Yeah. And they don't learn it in order to learn this. They learn uh, like you learn song lyrics and things. And so the ability of the human mind to actually learn material is vastly different in an oral culture than it is for us. To see these feats, you realize, wow, people, when they have to, when they live in a world where you don't just write things down, have remarkably, it's like if someone who's blind has better, um, has better hearing, you know, often can hear better, etc. So let's talk about what remains uh, important here uh, about the Septuagint. Um, I mean, the first one, obviously, is that this is quoted in the New Testament um, for most Old Testament quotations, right? I mean, this is the Bible everybody's working with. Well, by definition, if you're reading the Greek New Testament, you, we presume you probably know Greek is your best language. <laughs> and so what happens here is they would figure if people knew the Bible at all, they would know the Greek version. Uh, it used to be, for example, when I was a young scholar years ago, it used to be assumed standard according to the, uh, uh, to the official manuals and things way back that if you quoted the Bible, it was assumed to be the King James Version unless you mentioned another version. It was that sort of the standard, the Bible. Okay, so here, 
when the New Testament often either directly quotes the Old Testament or paraphrases it, you know, that's just sort of said. Now, in cases where it's a direct quotation or very close to a direct quotation, depending on how you count, 75 to 90% of all those quotes are word for word from the Septuagint. That's, I mean, so people clearly are quoting from the Septuagint. They're not retranslating the Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. So when this, and, and when we say people, we're talking St. Paul, you know, St. Peter, uh, Jesus himself. Paul's interesting. Paul has such an excellent Hebrew education. Remember, he started in Gamaliel. That he knows both, and he's a native Greek speaker. He speaks both well. So Paul actually chooses what he wants to do. Normally, he uses the Septuagint, but if he finds the Hebrew text is better for his point, he uses it. So he's a, he's a switch hitter. Uh, he largely uses Septuagint, but sometimes he thinks the Hebrew is even better to make the point. And so he won't hesitate in, that, in those cases to go to the Hebrew text. But it became, because it was quoted in the New Testament, the tradition, the early church was saying, how can you do better than being quoted by the inspired authors? So the Greek church to this very day looks upon the actual authoritative inspired Bible as being the Greek text. Okay, so so they still read the Septuagint as their, their Old Testament? They certainly do, as their Old Testament. Okay. If any of you have studied Koine Greek, you can read the Septuagint. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, well, right there is an answer to the question. It's enduring importance today is to the entire Eastern Church, so that's, that's, that's certainly something. Um, let's talk about the... W- tell me about, though... Uh, how how the west and why we don't use it why do we use translations of the original hebrew at this point well we were blessed by a truly great linguist considering uh, in his time and things jerome uh, uh of strabo is an amazing linguistic genius he's really really good and jerome learned hebrew from the best he learned in the holy land from rabbis and he knows it well. I mean, he truly knows the stuff. And so when he discovered Hebrew texts, there was no question to him that this was the Bible. That's why he was the one who pointed out the Apocrypha and saying there are certain things in here that are not in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so that's why he, he was the one who came up with the notion that the, the fundamental authoritative text was the original Hebrew, not the translation of the Septuagint. I see. So the, he... What's his, I mean, what's his reasoning for that? And I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Like we've got, you know, inspired authors of the New Testament quoting the Septuagint, you know, what that, that's always struck me as some, as kind of a, a, a puzzle to say, you know, well, if it's different, then, um, then we're going to go with the, uh, the Hebrew text i mean has that produced some kind of controversy as to you know which one is like the real old testament or something like that well it has an eastern church in the sense that they hold that you know the the authoritative divinely inspired text is the is the greek however i personally agree with jerome i'm a westerner but also you know that um, that he's saying it's natural when we do uh when we do when we write books and things to quote standard translations rather than retranslate, because people expect that with a book like this. The people reading the New Testament would know, like someone reading the book of Hebrews, which is all about people assuming people know the Old Testament, the Old Testament they knew would have been the Greek Old Testament. It would be very confusing for you to do a different, you know, if I start, the Lord is my shepherd, etc. We all know the 20, if I, or they are father, if I start doing my own, um, you know, from the cuff, off the cuff translation, it might be a lot less clear. What is he doing? 
And so unless there's a need to, it's uh, pretty standard for people to use um, standard translations rather than retranslating. That's pretty, pretty typical. Yeah, like that's often you look at a book, it'll say all translations come from. Okay, that makes that makes sense for sure. It gave more credibility that you were trying to pull something. People said, this is the Bible everybody agrees to. It's the Bible, it's a Jewish Bible, and that Bible says that's their translation. It seemed to be a logical thing to do. Okay, so um, tell me about how the Septuagint is structured. You know, we've talked before about how the order in the Hebrew text uh, of the books is, is different. Um, so how does the Septuagint shift things around? Well, uh, the Septuagint is written by Greeks who were Hellenistic. I mean, they were like, Greeks are very orderly thinkers. Mm-hmm. And we say there's a really the way the Hebrew Bible is organized. It has the law and then has the prophets, meaning the history books and the prophets, some of the prophets and some others, you know, are in the thing called the writings. And so that's just not a very satisfactory arrangement if you're a Greek. So they thought a more logical thing was let's start with the law, the books of the law, the five books of Moses. Let's talk about all the history, then all the poetry, then all the prophets. Okay. And that's the structure we have in our Bible today. Okay, there you go. They just thought it was more logical to group things instead of a lot had to do with timing and things as far as whether you were, how come something like Chronicles is at the end of of writings, but... uh, First second, first second Kings, first second Samuel are in the prophets, etc. You know, a lot of, you know, it just, all the prophets are together in one place. So we, we may use translations from the Hebrew text today, but we, we were, you know, pleased to keep the Septuagint order. Yeah, everybody keeps, um, almost everybody keeps the, uh, I have seen in France some translations actually keep the Hebrew order now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's talk about what the Septuagint lent to our Christian theology, you know, our theology of, of, of the Christ. And, and, you know, you said earlier that, I mean, it fell out of favor with Jews largely because Christians loved it so much. So, so let's talk about that. Why is that the case? Well, the Christian terminology, you know, comes, the reason we talk about Christ is because Christos is the Greek translation of somebody who's been in Mashiach is Hebrew for someone who's been anointed. You had pour oil on someone, they're Mashiach. In Hebrew, the Christos. So that's how we get the term Jesus Christ. It would be Yeshua, Mashiach, uh, so, so Yohamashiach. In, in Greek, they're in Christos, Hebrew. right? Yeah. yeah, so we take the Greek form normally through Latin. The Latin tends to take the Greek forms of these kind of things. And then, so we have it. So basically, when we use terms and things, it tends to come through the Greek. Even the names of the books of the Bible, like Genesis, is called Bereshit in Hebrew, meaning in the beginning. It takes the first words of the book. <laughs> it's not called, Genesis is simply the, the Greek word for beginning. Exodus, the Greek word, it's very generic, beautiful title, means basically the coming out. Exodus, the coming out. Whereas it's, um, it's uh, you know, it's, it says we're, um, these were the, these are the names, I think is how it began yeah. with, with Exodus. Yeah, we talked before about how the, the Hebrew titles of the books were often a bit like the, uh, you know, how hymns are titled the first line of the hymn. And it's right. just, to, it's to kind of get you started reading. But the, the Greeks liked to, you know, sort of summarize what the book is about. Right. Right. Deuteronomy, a second law. Yeah. Yeah. Deutero, second, and nomos law. Deuteronomy, the second law. Sure. So again, we have even uh, those, uh, some of our books of the Bible. And if you used older versions, Roman Catholics used to talk about, I love this, the chronicles were not called chronicles, they were called paralipomenon. Okay. If your Greek is rusty, that means um, sort of like chronicles. Uh, well, I guess that's what we translate it as, okay, as, as chronicles, but it means, you know, basically... Um, 
Yeah, that would better be the Terrestrial Day Chronicles. But we used to actually use the Greek word in English. English Catholic Bibles talk about the books of Paralipomena. Fascinating. I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Like that was just an everyday word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's talk, though, about the... Is, is the Septuagint important for us in understanding you know, the, the meaning of the Hebrew text, you know, scholars today, we, they look at a lot of different things in order to interpret, determine, you know, the meaning of the text, but you know, are, is there some way in which we're, uh, looking at the Septuagint in order to understand, you know, what the original text means? Yeah. Very often we have the old Testament is much tougher than the new Testament textually because it goes over a longer period of time. It's like reading older English and things. You know, all the New Testament's written in a very short period of time using, a, you know, it's, so it's very straightforward, relatively speaking, but the Old Testament is not. You know, there's some very easy books, like you're studying Hebrew, some are real, are real breeze, and some are really, really tough going, tough sledding. And so sometimes it really can help us looking at a text where it's very difficult to figure out what to look at what translators who saw these texts, you know, and were closer to the material and things, what they thought they meant words that we might have lost and things we're not sure of, the fact that somebody, a Jewish, this is not a question of having coming from a different place than we are. You know, the, the Christians versus Jews. These were Jews. How do they, as professional translators, look at the text can be helpful for us to understand. You know, this, especially, for example, there are sometimes we have in the Hebrew text things that appear to be, uh, the Hebrew text is never amended. Uh, if you're unaware of that, is it never, not a letter has changed. Matter of fact, when you read an actual Torah scroll in synagogue, they will sometimes they have things that's obviously misspelling, but you don't change those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you have a, you have a, you have a, a note like carry in the notes in, in in the in the margin says, well, this is what's written, but here's what you actually read out loud. It won't make sense if you read this. You know, here's what you read if you're reading it publicly. Uh, you know, but we don't change the text, so it can help us to know uh, somebody looking at the text who might have known more in the. Uh, you know, they might have had a better text. You know, maybe the spelling was correct; it hadn't been changed or something. Because with Hebrew, it's really tough because, uh, again, the idea of using those dots and dashes, you know, the, the, that we are used to in Hebrew, uh, for vowels did not exist at that time. That comes from the 6th century AD. So when you just have uh, the consonants and things, things can really, uh, uh, changing to a round can really change a lot. So it can be helpful to say, hey, these people are looking at, a good, at, a, at a, the oldest text we would know of. And here, this is, now that I'm looking at what they gave as a translation, I realize, hey, if I just turn these two letters around, I get that. Okay. That yeah. that kind of thing could be helpful. I see. So it's kind of working backward to reconstruct, you know, what the original yeah. text meant. It actually was. Okay. Yeah. That's helpful. That's helpful. So even some of the mistakes can be helpful. Um, oh, yeah. Even the mistakes tell us something. Yeah. It's reverse engineering type of thing. Yeah. That's really cool. And also words change. So the classic case is, so how do we understand? We talked about semantic fields. Remember, we but for our, is in a different language, the same word doesn't cover the same material. Like we explained it in Latin, there's no word for blue. We have two words. We have a word for sky blue and a word that we have for sea blue. You know, dark and light blue are different colors. So if you're translating, you have to, and it simply says in a text, something is blue. If you're translating that into Latin, you'd have to sort of go with one or the other. There is no one term in Latin would come, come both. And we call that a semantic field. Well, so the question becomes in, for example, Isaiah 7, a very famous passage. It says, Isaiah 7, a virgin shall come. The Hebrew says Alma. Alma means an un, young unmarried woman. But theoretically, um, a young unmarried woman is not necessarily physically a virgin. 
That would be desirable, but that's not a necessary fact. But it would be assumed fact, but not necessary. Whereas Parthenos is, is a Greek term that means specifically a physical virgin. There is no possible ambiguity in Greek, this word. So we have a word that's ambiguous, Alma. It could mean it normally we'd assume a person who's Alma is a virgin, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, whereas Parthenos does. Well, when the translators are translating this, these are Jewish Hebrew-speaking translators are translating what's the best way to put this in Greek. They chose Parthenos. So that tells us about their understanding of what was intended. Right. So Christians aren't just reading things back into it. This really, you know, in a mysterious way, this really was, you know, reflected the understanding of the community at the at the time. Obviously, their understanding wasn't that a, necessarily that a literally a virgin literally would conceive, but that word that that word is how they understand the prophecy. To me. It tells us something about the word. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, and and you said earlier, right, that you know this was the major way that the Bible became known in the oh, yeah. the Greek world, um, and of course, you know, at this time, everyone's speaking Greek. That's the language of trade, basically. So this this is really how the Bible kind of goes everywhere. Right? It's sort of like in scholarship now, or something. When you look at uh, at the articles in professional journals, if I have an article in English, I can be pretty sure anybody who really wants it has easy access mm-hmm. if it's in hindi taking nothing away from the but just a very fine technical but i realize i'm not going to have a broad audience right yeah exactly sadly perhaps but you know in a technical journal written in hindi on uh, medical issues or something until it's translated i can presume it's going to be very hard to, referring people to the journal is not going to help them too much sadly so uh any other thoughts you have for us on the the septuagint father Stephen? well i would think uh First of all, it's an important tool for understanding the New Testament. It really is because that's, you know, we see it all over the New Testament. So it's uh, it's it's really a good tool uh, for a Bible student to know about it. And it's an important part of our history. After all, this is the this is the Bible of the church fathers and things. So it's an important part of our history. And um, again, I'd say it's a practical thing is it's a wonderful way to keep up your Koine Greek. Nice. So yeah, if you yeah. want to say, I'd like to expand beyond the New Testament or sometimes saying, I don't know because I know all the passages so well. Is it really my Greek or I just know the passages? Yeah. You know, it'll give you a chance to, to test, test your stuff. Okay, great. But it's essential as far as biblical studies. You know, a serious biblical scholar has to be familiar with the, the Septuagint. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. Amen.